Join us for our five-part series, Cultural, Political, and Environmental Chaos, The Necessity for Creative Transformation, beginning on October 6th. Concepts informing these presentations will include Jung's evolutionary view of history, his ecological concept of the psyche, and the integration of shadow projections. We are also hosting New York Times bestselling author Thomas More for a day of cultivating soul. Thomas More will speak about the themes of his new book, Ageless Soul, and engage in conversation with attendees and analysts. Ageless Soul offers positive and inspiring guidance for becoming a full person as time goes by. This book provides a deep and comprehensive plan that sees aging not as a losing capacity, but as becoming who you are destined to be, a real human being. That event will be held October 27th in Glen Ellen and October 28th in downtown Chicago. To register for either of those, visit our website, youngchicago.org. Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, analytical psychology seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Today we have Christian Shamanism with Thomas Patrick Lavin, Ph.D. This episode is the first session of the series Christian Shamanism, Visions of Nicholas of Flu. A shaman is a person who has been forced by fate to take an inner, awe-filled journey, which ultimately gives a new form to the person and to the culture. This journey demands sacrifice, isolation from the collective's expectations, and a particular form of courage, which is able to accept new forms of awareness and new forms of the divine. Every religious tradition has stories of persons who have walked the shamanic path. Some religious traditions have called shamans by different names. Sage, saint, and bodhisattva are but a few of these names. There is also the little-discussed Christian shamanic tradition in which C.G. Jung stands, both as a revolutionary and as a healer of souls. This course uses the writings of C.G. Jung and Marie-Louise von Franz as the basis for discussing the role of the shaman in general and the Christian shaman in particular. Thomas Patrick Lavin, Ph.D., is a Zurich-trained Jungian analyst who holds a Ph.D. in clinical psychology and a PhD in theology. He was formerly chief clinical psychologist for the U.S. Army in Europe and is a founding member of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. He is in private practice in Wilmette, Illinois, and consults internationally on typology, spirituality, and addictions. There will be links in the show notes for the complete series and links to other lectures by Dr. Lavin. Well, first of all, thank you very much for coming. And I hope that this will be valuable to us all and that we will all learn something. If anything I say, um, or any of us say, 
during the next four slash five weeks that would lead to more understanding or a sense of compassion, awakening, forgiveness, or gratitude, then you might want to hold on to it. If anything I say or we say that leads away from any of those realities, you're free to let them go immediately because they're worthless. Um, and so I'd like to say that as a start, uh, especially when we're dealing with shamanism, because it's a, the, the name shaman comes from the Siberian Tungus language, and the word means someone who is able to be heated up. So hopefully we can get a little heated up in some of the things that we're going to talk about. But heating up or cooling down doesn't necessarily take us away from these four realities which I understand to be the inherent in and the goal of any authentic religious experience. I think that these realities um, are present uh, transtemporally, they're ubiquitous. The wonderful uh, translation of the Christian New Testament by Stephen Mitchell um, takes out those parts of the Synoptic Gospels which definitely aren't in this circumambulation of mystery, this path, the path of compassion, awakening, forgiveness, and gratefulness. And therefore it's more alive. There's less polemic. Um, as it says in the Tao Te Ching, the master doesn't have to defend herself. She just sees what's there. And so these can be very heated things because we're also dealing, when we're dealing with shamanism in general and we're dealing with Christian shamanism in particular, we're dealing with power and power complexes. So where we have power, we have power complexes. Where we have parents, we have parent complexes. Where we have complexes, just a quick thumbnail review of Jung, where we have complexes, we have archetypes. And where we have archetypes, we have lots of energy. And so, um, sometimes some of it doesn't necessarily lead to compassion or gratefulness or forgiveness in the short run. But there's a long run, too, with a lot of these things. Well, um, 
I would like to read uh, what I wrote about what we're going to discuss and what I prepared. First, uh, there is a working definition of, of a shaman, and I think that there are probably as many definitions of shaman as people who uh, do any type of study of shamanism. Like there is many definitions of alcoholism as there are alcoholics uh, or doctors who try to define themselves out of being diagnosed as one. Uh, and so a working definition for me, and you're going to hear several working definitions, um, is that a shaman is a person who's been forced by fate to take an inner awe-filled journey which ultimately gives a new form to the person and to the culture. The journey demands sacrifice, isolation from collective expectations, the collective expectations, and a particular form of courage which is able to accept new forms of awareness i.e. new states of, altered states of consciousness, new forms of awareness, and new forms of the divine. And that's a lot of courage. A lot of courage. It's, it's a question for a shaman. It is not really taking the experience of a tradition, and here I'm just drawing a carrot, and the shaman stands here, and you can see that the shaman has to fit into a narrow area. Uh, and that is really not what sh shamanism is about. Some would look at it in a very narrow definition where all of the experiences of the shaman, and we're going to talk about this this evening, has to fit into a certain pattern or is molded into a certain pattern. The shaman, the authentic shaman tradition, on the other hand, is a person who is open to, both from the head and the heart, this core ago, the, the movement, ajure to move, movement from and of the heart and the head, to whatever experience await one is called to. Now, that's a lot of courage, because you don't know the perceptions of reality that we were all born with and trained with, born into, let's put it that way, are subject to dramatic change in a shamanic journey. And so that's a lot of courage. Every religious tradition has stories of persons who've walked the shamanic path every tradition. And therefore, you hear people <coughs> write about or say, well, so-and-so couldn't be a shaman because they're not of the right tribe or right, not of the right ethnic mix or 
branch or what have you. And yet there is what, what I'm suggesting to you in good Jungian fashion, and I will try to make a bit apparent, is that, that the person of the shaman is indeed an archetypal reality, meaning it's everywhere and at all times, if it's an archetypal reality. The difficulty that we have is that in, uh, since the 10th century, uh, we are not uh, as aware of the shamanic tradition within Christianity. In a way, it's been snuffed out. Not in a way. It's been snuffed out. People have consciously tried to snuff out Christianity. If someone gets too much into the world of spirits, then she or he might be liable to be burnt at someone's stake in some strange foreign culture. We'd never burn anyone in this country, of course. Okay. So, we have these traditions, um, and people are, shamans are called by different names, sage, saint, bodhisattva, a few of these names. However, there is a little discussed Christian shaman, shamanic tradition in which Jung stands, both as a visionary and as a healer of souls. What's my inference? Jung is a shaman. Okay, which um, I think a lot of people uh, would under, that understand uh, shamanism correlating very strongly with schizophrenia would say, yes, he is. There's no question. As a matter of fact, many, many years ago, uh, I was studying group therapy in, in Munich under a professor, Klockenhoff, and I was introduced to Klockenhoff, who later became a dear friend. But uh, they said, this is Lavin, he's the Jungian. And Klockenhoff said, ah, yeah, yeah, der Jung, there was the schizophrenic what turned out all right. <laughs> First thing, first thing he said, boom, right away. Often one hears mystic. Uh, and of course the idea is that if you're a mystic, then that's what you do. Any other profession or ability or what have you is uh, obviously would have to be secondary if present at all uh, in the Lala land that mystics inhabit. Uh, and so you have sort of a counter uh, tendency among Jungians, at least when I was in Zurich 30 years ago, and they said, you know, he's not a mystic. He isn't. He's a clinician and an empiricist. And then we all got that down for any exam that anyone was in. Is Jung a mystic? Well, he, uh, uh, first and foremost, he's a clinician. 
Uh, and then they smiled and said, right. And, and the word empiricism was important, too. Um, we hadn't forgotten August Comte and logical positivism. And after all, Jung made himself famous with a stopwatch uh, back in the early, at the turn of this century with the association test. So if you could say stopwatch and empiricist, you were halfway to becoming an analyst at that time. So there was kind of a counter-reformation um, going on at that time. Uh, but Jung does stand in this tradition. And so we're going to talk about Jung tonight and his monograph, Bruder Klaus. And Jung wrote this document in 1933. Uh, documents about the visions, additional documents about the visions of Bruder Klaus were found in Einsiedeln, a Benedictine monastery to the south and west of where the Black Madonna is, south and west of Zurich in the mountains, were found in 1947. So Jung is coming out 14 years before the finding of additional documents which also, in some basement in Einsiedeln, under the Black Madonna, let's make up a story. No, that's not right. Um, that it was, these documents were found, which really, in, in my mind, collaborate some of the 1933 discoveries of Jung. Why Jung, I think, was so interested in Bruder Klaus was that Jung was very close. Jung's life story was very close. Jung's calling very close. Jung's initiation into the world of the soul was very close to that of the peasant Bruder Klaus. Uh, as a matter of fact, he says in his monograph, uh, and I found this very touching. He says, I see him as somewhat unusual, but in no way pathological. A man after my own heart, my brother Klaus. Uh, I would say this is, is 33 years, uh, written 33 years after Jung published his doctoral thesis on the psychology of so-called occult phenomena. So Jung is interested in the occult before 1900. He's interested uh, because of his uh, mother, because of his cousin, who was the, whose seances and mediumistic work was indeed the subject of his doctoral thesis. And he writes this 
20 years after his break with Freud, and if you remember in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, Jung talks about Freud asking him or saying to him, promise me you'll give up this spirit stuff. This is not good for psychology at all. That was, there were two promises asked of Jung. One was, please give up this spirit stuff. It's, it's ruining our persona. Secondly, was, promise me that you will see transference, counter-transference, well, more transference. They went heavy into counter-transference then, unfortunately. Uh, transference theory, and the sexual theory is the alpha and the omega of all of our work. Now, these are the dogmas. And if you're going to be a faithful follower, this is what has to be done. I forget whether Jung promised or whether he crossed his fingers behind his back. I, it could be. Because a promise uh, in time of great need, a personal promise, is not ethically binding one of the great principles of contemporary ethics. That the, the good of the person or of the community is above a personal promise. So Jung really sees Bruder Klaus, Brother Klaus, as his brother, soul brother, literally, not only figuratively. So, we do want to talk this evening about the Christian shamanic journey as an edited experience of agony and ecstasy. To do that, we have to talk about the shamanic journey as it is just a, as a shamanic journey and take Christian out. Because when you're dealing with Christian, you're dealing with edited in terms of the story. Because all stories, fortunately and unfortunately, are contaminated uh, or in, enhanced by the culture in which they're told. There are 27 versions of Cinderella in Europe. In some cases, she has bearskin shoes, in other cases she has glass slippers, etc. And so the archetype must move through the culture. Has no choice. Has no choice. But there is an edited then when we're dealing with a particular religious organization, we deal with the editing of religious experience. And that's very important for us to realize. On November 2nd, we're going to talk in detail about the visions. Because if a shaman is anything, a shaman is a visionary. <coughs> the visions are what is important. Uh, why else would one journey? One journeys to get visions. Uh, and, and also, I mean, the auditory uh, message 
as well as the vision. To see and to hear. The blind see, the deaf hear, the poor hear stories that make them happy. Lots of people were shamans. Some people are conscious of being shamans, some aren't. It doesn't make any difference. And as you may have read, von Franz suggests, that those who are shamans and aren't conscious of it probably are the better ones. Because we don't get into the whole ego malaise of ego grandiosity, which could come to it. On November 9th, talking about the Christian mystical experience, but what is a mystical experience anyway? What does that mean, Jung, the mystic, or the schizophrenic? And so what I'd like to do is talk about schizophrenia and mysticism and yoga and altered states of consciousness. We're all into altered states these days. Uh, manage care and altered state, I don't know. Uh, that's okay, not to know, I guess. Um, to do that, we have to talk about the androgyny of divine ground. And that is very important, especially when you're dealing with a Christian mystical experience that tends to petrify the ground. Um, and then the emotional faces of the divine, that um, somehow it's felt to be at times rather tacky to talk about the divine uh, being emotional or having emotions. That's, we're beyond that now. Uh, <laughs> and then, of course, <laughs> we get caught from behind. Uh, as happened to Brother Klaus. Uh, one of the important things about a shaman, one of the activities that is expected of the shaman in many cultures is the ability to heal. And so we need to talk about healing. Um, and if we're going to talk about it in the Christian tradition, then we have to, to talk about something that breaks through a very narrow place, a breakthrough of dogmatism into a healing of body, soul, and spirit. And that, and so that it has to be not just of body. So we have to really go into traditions of healing and understand that there are long traditions, pre-Christian traditions of healing. There are parallel practices of healing that are uh, pagan and Christian. And uh, I would say that we need to get back in touch to understand healing we really need to get back in touch with an idea of divine illness and divine healing, the presence of the divine. 
in the healing and in the wounding process. You also have heard, I'm sure, of uh, books uh, and topics about wounded healer. Henri Nguyen, for instance, has written a book called The Wounded Healer. Uh, the difficulty that leads uh, almost always to malpractice of one form or another is that when the person splits the archetype, a person identifies with one part of an archetype. So you're the wounded, but not the healer. Or you're the healer, but you're not wounded. And when you either identify with an archetype or you split one, you break up what should be together, then uh, basically in common uh, terminology, we're dealing with malpractice in the original sense of malus, malus, and praxis. This is really opening the door to the shadow side. And there is a whole shadow side of woundedness and a shadow side of healing. Split them, and you're open to it, consciously or not. You know, the... the uh, the famous words that Jung chiseled on his gravestone and uh, the words of Erasmus, but, and they were also on the portal over his house on Seistrasse in Kusnacht. And the words are vocatus sed non vocatus deus adirat, called or not called, God will be present. called or not called, we have to deal with the supra and infra-human. And that's part of the vocation of the shaman. Like the Chinese of old, the shaman considers herself or himself as being a person who lives in the middle kingdom and that there is a kingdom above and a kingdom below. The shaman's duty, obligation, uh, and in sometimes agony, is the call to, to journey, to travel to the kingdom above and the kingdom below. And then, unfortunately, she or he is told by the culture, or expected really by the culture, uh, not to come back empty-handed. Okay. So these are some of the things that I have planned to share with you. But I would, before going on any further, I would like to ask you a question. And that is, when you thought about coming to this uh, course, this meeting. Uh, what about the topic of Christian shamanism? What is it about Christian shamanism that piqued your interest or touched your soul or brought you here? We're here. Okay. It's 7.30.
You've all worked all day. Or you've been at jobs and you're here working now. Uh, what touched you? Yes? I don't think I knew there was any such thing. Okay. Great. Great. Anybody else? Yes? About um, 11, must have been about 11 years ago, I went to a workshop given at another center here in, in Chicago, the Oasis Center, mm -hmm. by Michael Horner, who was the author of this book here. And uh, he does uh, workshops here, his people do workshops there on a frequent basis. And amazingly, out of that experience of that workshop, it's a very, you know, you really do, you know, Sort of shamanic things in there. You're in the canoe, aren't you? Yeah. When you're with him. Right. Yep. You're beating tom-toms and shooting yep. rattles and things like that. Um, uh, within a couple of years, I went through a major conversion to Christianity uh, right after that, uh, which was totally unexpected to me because I always expected to be nothing like that. And it was clear to me that there was a connection there that it was that workshop that opened that up to me. And uh, so I identified myself as a Christian. A whole lot of other things happened, but I identified myself as a Christian shaman um, eight or nine years ago. But I've had to be in the closet all this time because I didn't think there was anybody out there talking about it or doing it yet. So, you know, when I heard about this workshop, I thought maybe I could find some kindred. Some other closet shamans closet as well. Shaman, Why not? Closet Christian shamans. You have to be off of Guinness for two weeks before you can say that. That's right. Closet Christian shaman. Okay. Good. I think that's important because I think there are kindred spirits, uh, people who do want a journey, and it's not, uh, you're liable to get Thorazine um, or exorcised. We exorcise people like you. We have for a long time. We also burn them at the stake, you know. Not we, but I mean, that's a, it's a papal, papal we. <laughs> but okay, so that's, all right, a feeling for the reality of this. And uh, we're going to talk a bit about the work of Michael Harner, who is highly respected, uh, unlike some other people, like uh, Castaneda. Uh, they're, they're also... He is respected, uh, I would say, very much. The other person that is highly respected that you should know about if you don't know about him already is, and I didn't put him in the bibliography because, um, uh, why? I thought usually if people can do enough of read Jung and von Franz, that's monumental in and of itself. Uh, for me, now that's probably a projection. But um, Roger Walsh has written probably one of the best books on shamanism. It's rather rather new. I think about two years old. Called the Spirit of Shamanism. Uh, yeah, it is two years old. And Roger Walsh is a, an Australian, is a psychiatrist, is a philosopher, uh, and like Harner, highly respected, and has undergone himself shamanic training. Um, 
But shamanism is like acupuncture. As soon as people find out that you can make a buck, then everyone goes and buys needles or gets a drum, you know. So one has to be rather discriminatory. Uh, and I'm going to read a dream of a patient of mine that's hot off the unconscious uh, this evening. Usually, uh, which really talks about being a bit wary of some people who run in certain circles. Um, and I, I think that's, that's healthy, uh, not to be naive. Uh, and we're in that situation where people are open to profit, but aren't ready to hear about different versions or ideas of energy. Okay, so you, you got the needles, but you don't know spit about chi. Well, that's a little problematic, you see. But anyway. Uh, so, any others in terms of... Yes, please. Well, I go to a Christian seminary at Park, and I've studied a lot more pagan shamanism than Christian shamanism yet. Okay. So, that's important. Um, I had no less experience, which I thought was significant and certainly changed my life. And I've more than been reading about this, some commonalities, since I want to go into chaplaincy. Um, also, first time reading about shamans, I read the word psychopomp, which is uh -huh. an interesting word, and I thought, gosh, that's kind of what I've always wanted to do. A strange thing to say, but from this end, in terms of helping people through a transition, I'd like to work eventually with AIDS folks, mm -hmm. hospice work, and uh, I think it's, it's uh, so I'm real interested in that, especially interested too in learning more about, like you said, I've been to a Christian seminary studying pagan shamanism, so now I come to the Union Institute studying yeah. Christian shamanism. So. But as logical as anything okay. else. Yeah, not to be. If, if you're really interested in logic, of course, then shamanism is not going to do a lot for you initially. Uh, it has, like dreams, it has its own inner logic, however. And really, there, there are stages in the shamanic journey. There are also stages in religious experience. And I think we need to talk about this. This is very important. Because there are maps of religious experience into which shamanism belongs, folds in, is central. And now we're able to do this. In this century, we're able to talk about the mapping of altered states of consciousness within organized religion, within ancient, archaic, in quotes, ways of dealing with religious experience, like the ways of Brother Klaus, and also through the use of chemicals as another way of coming to terms with uh, the divine and the experiences of love and knowledge or hatred and numbness which flow from an archetypal experience. Very important. If 
Bruder Klaus had an experience that he had to circle. He had to mandalize. This is the last uh, experience. And Jung says, and von Franz says, we need to put our experiences of the divine in some sort of circle or order or way to deal with it. Because it's too much for us, for anyone. As a matter of fact, in one particular experience of, of Brother Claus, he falls to the ground before his heart would break, thereby avoiding a really a, a total psychotic state and then breaking and splitting off, as indeed Mount Pilatus, which is outside of Lucerne, broke in one of his visions of Christ. Okay, so the mountains will be made level. In this, and how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this perception in whatever school? And there are some schools that can't and don't deal with this perception. We're very much afraid of it. And there's uh, the schizophrenic who turned out all right, okay, is is uh, or the mystic or. Um, oh yeah, young. And so there are different ways of distancing from religious experience, and yet the whole question of the role religious experience plays in healing. That last year, there were 484 visits, million visits paid to people who practiced correlative medicine. There were 383 visits to medical doctors, million visits to medical What's that saying in, in the United States of America? Is it talking about Medicine losing its soul in technocracy. You know? Is managed care an oxymoron? Like military intelligence. And we have to ask ourselves these questions as consumers, or we wind up the moron. And someone else winds up the oxy, I guess. I don't know. Okay. But this is very important. The role of the soul in healing. And are we in a situation where we find ourselves losing more and more soul? About two years ago, I had an idea, and I said to ask my wife if, She'd cooperate with me. I said, I have a feeling that books are going to come out with three S words. Let's look for them and see, you know. And the words are soul, spirit, and self. And so look at books in psychology 
in the last two to three years. If you talked about spirit, I was at a closet meeting in San Francisco in 1985 of people who talked about the disease of alcoholism as loss of spirit, Alayon. And there was Larry Dossey and myself and Stan Groff and several other people and we were brought together because we'd said something privately and they organized this conference so that we could come out of the closet and use the word soul and use the word spirit to a larger audience. And then later we all did it at Esalen. And so this, this is 85, this is, this is not 10 years ago, where at Grand Rounds at XYZ Hospital, one wouldn't say, looks like loss of soul to me, doctor. What do you think? <laughs> a big no-no, unless you were a Jungian, which meant you wouldn't get staff privileges anyway. So there you are. So this, this whole idea of when we're dealing with shaman, we're dealing with soul. There is, because shamanism has as a worldview animism. From anima, meaning soul. And so if one is a shaman, a person is a shaman, uh, but has real difficulty or a fear of experiencing her or his own soul, but is claiming to be a shaman and an acupuncturist and an analyst and a tarot car reader and whatever else one claims to be in that whole thing. Uh, I'm waiting for that on you know, the expressway or something. Tarot cards, Jungian analysis, uh, uh, shaman, uh, and palm reading. Uh, and kind of put them all together. And you had a question as to where that place is, did you? <laughs> I was just going to add that uh, where I grew up, that and uh, rural Arkansas, uh, that still is very much a part of the local tradition, this healing and coming together. You find that in uh, among simple folks, I call them rural people from Mexico, Puerto Rico, Haiti, Dominican Republic, Panama, mm -hmm. still have that basis. In fact, uh, there was an article uh, at the peak of the, what we call the OEO days, the Office of Economic Opportunity, where there was a lot of discussion that happened on uh, Monday morning after something that went on at a meeting on Sunday, Saturday, the weekend, and they couldn't get to work because they were still way high. And it had uh -huh. nothing had nothing to do with drugs. Yep. And this was in the Puerto Rico, and it came out of Spanish Harlem. Uh, the people generally came out of the backwoods of Puerto Rico, not the city. Mm -hmm. This is the way they sustained themselves, making that transition from a rural area to a metropolitan area. Okay. They had to have that support system. If they didn't, what they did find, <coughs> when uh, some of the guys were ordered into the service, she would know they had the psychotic break. Yeah. Because the support system was pulled away from them. Yeah. Okay.
Okay. I think that also has a whole, and I think we need to talk about that too, and that is uh, the whole question of culture's role in shamanism and in the history of shamanism. Because not only do shamans journey, but initially shamans came from a journeying people. So the people having religious experiences were often on the move. Until uh, we then said, well, maybe that's not totally so. Maybe it's not just a desert experience. Because we go back to the caves of southern France 15,000 years ago, and we see in the cave of Les Trois Frères a picture on the wall of a man in deer clothing 15,000 years ago in a stable cave. And then around them, the other caves in, in southern France, we begin to see other stories done in picture of people who believe in animal spirits. People begin to deal with not only those who are moving along, but also those like Brother Klaus who are in a special, if not sacred, space. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org. Thank you.